The academic study of heroic myth narratives begins roughly in 1871 with the anthropologist Edward Burnett Taylor, who observed common patterns in the plots of heroes' journeys across various cultures and time periods. However, it was popularized in the wider mindset by Joseph Campbell, who was influenced by Carl Jung's influence of mythology through the um, prism of archetype. Uh, this is... Um, embodied in his 1949 novel, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Uh, basically, it establishes what's known as the monomyth, which is this theory that all heroic narratives stem into a single uh, common force. As Campbell put it himself, a hero ventures forth from the world of the common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered, and decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. Now, this could roughly approximate uh, Moses, Momotaro, Perseus, Hercules, Osiris, and Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, however, uh... Fictional narratives are brought up fairly often, um, most notably Jane Eyre. The first uh, film to consciously use Joseph Campbell's theories of the mon monomyth in building its own story was Star Wars, and the success of that film re resulted in a lot of uh, others following suit. Um, the Campbellian monomyth uh, uh, transfers pretty seamlessly to superhero narratives, and it's particularly evident in legacy heroes. These would be uh, superheroes following the footsteps of established figures like um, Kyle Rayner following Hal Jordan and Alan Scott as Green Lantern, and so on and so forth. Uh, for today's episode, we'll be discussing Spider-Man, Edge of the Spider-Verse, which... Uh, is pretty much the most famous example of a, mon uh, of a of a legacy hero right now, and among other things, going to be discussing how Miles Morales' hero's journey uh, both uh, fits into and deviates from uh, Campbellian model myth. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. Okay, joining me on this episode is my nine-year-old nephew Toby. Say hello. Hello. That's going to be the voice he's using throughout the whole thing. No, it's not. I, I speak directly into the microphone. No, it is not going to be the voice he's using. Well, we'll, we'll see how this rolls out. Now, uh, the reason I invited Toby to join me here is while uh, I'm in old comic nerd, uh, the studios will be happy to take my money no matter what, but you're the target audience for this. This film was made for you. It probably was. Yeah. Um, so before we uh, dive into the plot, um, the most important pressing question I think facing us right now is uh, which of the various Spider-Men is your favorite? My favorite Spider-Man is probably Miles. Uh, you heard it here first. Toby's favorite is Miles. I know you're up. Your mom's favorite is Gwen. Uh, for some reason, you didn't want her to join us on this one, so she's washing dishes over there. Okay. Now, before we uh, go into a deconstruction of the theme, some of which I already um, alluded to, we're going to be going over the plot, which is, um, considering this film is like 90 minutes long, and... It's, it's super tight, and there's a lot of complexity to it, so let's just dive into it. 
All right, our central character is Miles Morales, a teenager living in Brooklyn. He is struggling to adapt to a new school, which is a prestigious charter-based boarding school that he won entry to by lottery. Um, this awkwardness is established pretty eloquently in the uh, opening crawl where he just sort of like says hi and casually chats with his buddies while he's walking to school and after he gets in there um, he doesn't know what to say to the preppy kids all wearing the uniforms also during the sequence um, we meet Miles's father Jefferson uh, he's very strict he expects a lot from Miles he's a police officer and uh, it's also established that he disapproves of Spider-Man considers him to be an unregulated uh, vigilante who answers to nobody which, you know, he's not wrong. Now, uh, Miles uh, escapes from the pressures of his academic life by sneaking out the paint graffiti with his cool Uncle Aaron, who teaches a man stuff like the shoulder touch. Right, while they're uh, tagging a, um, a, a subway, uh, Miles gets bitten by a genetically altered spider in a subway tunnel. And if you're vaguely familiar with Spider-Man, you know what's going to happen. Now... Miles wakes up having freakish powers that he doesn't understand. He has a growth spurt. He, his hands keep sticking to things. He has this imminent sense of terror and danger, which I mean, I imagine is the existential dread of adolescence, but there's something more than that. Uh, there's this cute girl named Gwen in his, um, in his classroom that he's trying to like, you know, get to know better, but his hand sticks to her hair and rips her hair out. So she has to get this asymmetric haircut that, um, that the Zoomer kids seem to be into these days. Um, Miles then goes back to the subway because uh, he suspects that he has gotten spider powers like that Spider-Man comic told him. Then he stumbles into a brawl between Spider-Man, the Green Goblin, and the Prowler. Um, they're fighting over a dangerous particle accelerator that's funded by the Kingpin. Now, uh... Miles gets into some trouble, but Spider-Man saves him from danger. However, he uh, recognizes that he has spider powers using his spider senses and uh, offers him how to, uh, to show him how to properly use them. Uh, Spider-Man's then uh, uh, severely wounded by a falling beam after the particle accelerator explodes. He, uh, he makes Miles take a USB drive that will disable the accelerator and warns him that if he fails to do this, it could destroy the city. Uh, He's then confronted by Kingpin, who kills Spider-Man. However, he notices that there's a kid hiding in the background and sends the Prowler to kill him. Uh, however, Miles manages to lose Prowler in the, uh, in the subway. After Spider-Man's funeral, uh, Miles buys a uh, store-bought uh, Spider-Man costume and tries to learn how to use his abilities. However, this does not go well, and he breaks the USB drive in the uh, ensuing... Um, panic that seemed to be one of your favorite parts just seeing uh miles just awkwardly try to jump off the roof and just bounces off everything so yeah that was probably one of my favorite parts of the whole thing all right you can you speak up a little bit you got a special so microphone probably one of my favorite parts of the whole thing yeah there you go now, at uh, Spider-Man's grave, Miles bumps into Peter B. Parker, an older, jaded, and worn-out Spider-Man from another dimension. Uh, it's mentioned in a recap that he did a bunch of things that are very similar to the Sam Raimi Spider-Man. We'll be getting back to that. 
And uh, however, he's in his mid to late uh, 30s now, possibly older 40s, and uh, I mean early 40s. And his uh, marriage with Mary Jane Watson fell apart because they had an argument over whether or not they should have kids. Now, after some guilt tripping from Miles, uh, Peter reluctantly agrees to train him in exchange for um, stealing data about the Accelerator, a Kingpin's uh, research facility at Alchemax. Now, uh, Miles discovers that in addition to spider powers, he has these little sort of electric shock uh, discharge abilities, and he can turn invisible, which he finds out while they're sneaking around Alchemax. However, they uh, bump into one of the research scientists who um, confirms that Peter will painfully die if he doesn't return to his own dimension. Now, she's not going to help them because it turns out that she's Dr. Octopus, which is, um, her reveal is one of the better parts of the film, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, uh, fleeing Dr. Octopus and a bunch of other mad scientists, um, Peter and Miles run into Gwen Stacy, that girl that, uh, Miles was interacting with awkwardly at, at the school. Turns out that she's another alternate um, Spider-Man from another dimension. She is Spider-Woman from that dimension. Uh, they then track down Aunt May, who is sheltering various other Spider-People. Uh, Spider-Man Noir, uh, Spider-Ham, Peter Porker, and uh, Penny Parker, who uh, is from a distant techno uh, technologic future. Uh, Miles offers to help them return home before they, you know, disintegrate, but they suspect that he's too inexperienced to contribute. Uh, at this point, we'll also reveal why Kingpin is so hard-pressed to uh, build this super collider. You see, while fighting Spider-Man, uh, he unwittingly revealed his crime boss uh, background to his, uh, to his wife and son, who were then killed in a car accident after they were fleeing from him. He wants to reach to another, uh, another dimension to pull an alternate family back to him. Uh, Dr. Octopus is helping him out uh, because she wants to build a collider. She leaves out the part where, you know, anybody brought through the collider will eventually disintegrate. Now... Miles goes back to Uncle Aaron's house to seek advice from him, but at this point he finds out that Aaron is the Prowler. Uh, he runs back to Aunt May's, but Prowler tailed him, and the house is invaded by Prowler, Kingpin, Dr. Octopus, Scorpion, and Tombstone. In the ensuing skirmish, uh, Miles gets the, US, uh, the new USB drive, but he's confronted by Prowler. Uh, Aaron then finds out that Miles is this new spider kid that's been running around, and then he disobeys an order from Kingpin to kill him. Kingpin shoots Aaron. Miles uh, swings to an alley with uh, uh, with him, where Aaron then dies of his injuries. Miles' dad arrives, and <clears throat> this leads him uh, to conclude that Spider-Man killed Aaron. Now, Miles is freaking out in his dorm at this point, where the other Spider-People um, approach him. They tell him that they've all lost people. This seems to be the common thread throughout all the Spider-People. However, Peter B. Parker is now convinced that Miles Morales doesn't have the chops to help them return to the home dimension. He has volunteered to get everybody else home and then destroy the Collider by himself and die in the process. Miles objects, but he binds and gags him. Uh, at this point, Miles' dad appears outside his dorm apologizing for his mistakes and uh, expressing a desire for them to be closer. He's afraid that they're drifting apart. 
after a bit of a montage where he thinks back on all the various things that the people have said to him over uh, the course of the story. Miles now masters his powers. He breaks loose. He uh, puts together a distinct Spider-Man costume. He gets some web shooters from Aunt May, and he rejoins the other spy spider people at the, uh, at the Collider as it's being reactivated. Together, they defeat Kingpin's minions, and uh, one by one, the various other spider people are set, sent home. Uh, Peter B. Parker uh, is a bit reluctant to go, but Miles eventually convinces him that he can handle it on his own. Uh, Miles and Kingpin fight for a while, and Miles' dad, Jefferson, uh, enters the fray. He notices the fight, and Miles gets on the uh, is on the ropes for a bit. Kingpin gets him down, but he hears his father's encouragement, rises up, and defeats Kingpin, and then throws Kingpin at the at the, at the kill switch to uh, turn off the collider. The film ends with uh, Miles embracing his new responsibilities, both at school and uh, as a superhero. Uh, Miles' dad has seen Spidey as a hero. Uh, the other spiders go on to their lives, um, most notably Peter B. Parker attempting to reconnect with his estranged wife. The very last scene in the film is Gwen reaching through the dimensions to contact Miles for uh, uh, reasons that are but mysterious, clearly sequel bait. And then there's an after credit scene with the uh, Miguel O'Hara version of Spider-Man from 2099 going back in time and confronting the Spider-Man from the 1967 cartoon. And that is the film. Right, what would you think of the movie, Toby? I thought it was okay. In what capacity? Um, probably, uh, I think it was very good, except that those parts were... Come on, Toby, people are waiting with bated breath. Now, I, I, did, I did notice that there were certain scenes that made you hide under a blanket... Uh, it was the scene where Miles was being awkward. Yes. I don't like this. Uh, are, are, are there aspects from uh, your personal life that may have um, made you relate to those scenes? <laughs> Maybe a little bit? I don't think so. You don't think so? No, I don't think so. I do think so. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the whole part where... Um, you know, Miles is being dropped off by his dad, and he goes on the intercom and forces Miles to say in front of all the strange new children that he loves him, and he's super embarrassed, and you could not look at the screen while that was happening. Yes, I did not look at that. Okay, well, uh... Let's get into the cast, which I think is a big part of what carries the film. Uh, Shamik Moore's Miles Morales. Uh, it was... Weird for me to see uh, behind-the-scenes footage of him because he is very much a grown-up man. He's in his late 20s or early 30s, but his Miles voice, that's thats just what he sounds like. There's no affectation whatsoever. It is disconcerting to hear a grown-ass man use that voice. Uh, Jake Johnson is Peter B. Parker. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, I've read somewhere that Tobey Maguire was approached with doing the part and turned him, da and turned him down. Uh, not not to um, go against uh, Johnson's performance, he does a very nice job, but it would have been interesting, if not a bit on the nose. Uh, it, it's very clearly established that Peter B. Parker is basically lived a very similar, if not the same life as the uh, 
as the as the Spider-Man from the first three live-action films uh, directed by Sam Raimi. Now, the thinking behind it, according to an interview with Johnson, is that uh, Peter B. Parker is supposed to be uh, Mr. Miyagi from The Karate Kid, except he has no idea what he's talking about. He's he's not the best mentor. I mean, he only comes... He only begrudgingly does it. He feels a little put upon. Uh, like I said, Miles guilt trips him, and as uh, we were talking about earlier, uh, most superheroes are are, um, are vulnerable to guilt trips. Spider Man, essential, especially. Now, uh, Haley Steinfeld is Gwen Stacy. Uh, I remember one thing your mom said uh, said about the design that she really liked is that Gwen looks like a, a a person and not a Barbie doll. She has a little gap in her teeth. There's that asymmetric haircut, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, now, Haley Steinfeld was, uh, I mean, she first came onto the scene um, with, uh, with, with Jeff Bridges in that, um, in that Western, why, why am I blanking on the name of it? It's a remake of an old John Wayne movie. But um, I think you saw her in Bumblebee. Uh, yeah, was that a kid? Yeah, yeah, she was, the, she was the kid in Bumblebee. It's Haley Steinfeld. Now, uh, John Mulaney is Spider Ham, which I kind of, I kind, I kind of suspected that Spider Man, uh, Spider Ham, might have been your favorite, but it's actually Miles. Yeah, it's really close between Spider Ham and Miles. So far, it's for now, it's Miles, but it's really close. Yeah, uh, Toby's favorite in any given idiom tends to be either whichever one he thinks is the toughest or whichever one he thinks is the funniest. And his last I checked, your favorite Avenger was Thor. Because you think Thor is the funniest and possibly the strongest. It's Thor and... Uh, Alright, uh, Nicolas Cage is Spider-Man War, which um, every time Nicolas Cage says something in this movie, I laugh. It's it's a, it's a very scenery-chewing full Cage ro uh, role. He only says, like, he, he, he only has, like, maybe a page and a half of dialogue if you add them all together, but he just shines every time. Uh, uh, then there's uh, Lee Schreiber's The Kingpin. One thing I found out about uh, uh, Schreiber's performance is that he stuffed toilet paper up his nose because he's under the impression that Kingpin was this uh, this thug that this sort of is putting on this front as a respectable businessman, and in all likelihood, he's had his nose broken a couple of times. I bet he does. I bet uh, he does. And there's uh, Mahash. Uh, Mahash uh, Shahala is uh, Ali is the Prowler, who um, yeah, it's a it's a very complicated role in this film. Um, there are differences between how uh, Prowler is depicted in the comics in this film, which I'll be getting into later on. But the basic idea is that you know Spider-Man's origin is that he gets bit by the spider, his uncle dies, and he fights crime. And the same thing happens to Miles, but in a in, in a somewhat different way. Which I think is one of the more clever aspects of how the how this film is pr produced and how the legacy character is added. Now, the the thing about this movie that everyone talks about is the animation style, and I mean, over and over again, you uh, kept commenting about how cool everything looks. Yeah, I like how everything looks. I just wish like that would actually happen, but they would look more like realistic. Uh, like those cool things that would happen, like the comic weird 
brush things that were yellow, and but it was it actually looked like real life, and there were and the comic books were laid out on like an actual table. Uh, so yeah, so you're saying that you would like a like to see a live action film that has that that uses the 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 kind of effects that are in this one. Yes. Yeah, uh, as uh, Toby alluded to. Uh, the uh, animators were going for, for sort of a living painting vibe, and they're trying to blend uh, animation with uh, what you know even the layman thinks of of, of comic book tropes. Uh, there are wipes that look like you're turning a page. Uh, onomatopoeia up here on the screen. Uh, there's Kirby crackle. There's cross hatching. Uh, there's a sort of a Ben Day dot effect going on all over the place. Um, there are scenes where Miles is thinking out loud, and you, you, you see these captions, especially if he's very self-conscious at the moment. And there are lots of, like, little things added. Uh, one thing that was pointed out to me was the frame rate. Now, I don't want to get overly technical, but um, most of the film is animated on ones, which means that there are 24 frames per second, and that has a very, like, fluid, natural vibe to it. However, certain aspects of the film are done on twos, which would be 12 frames a second. Um, this is particularly evident in the early scenes where Miles is trying to figure out his powers. Uh, having the more limited frame rate gives him a sort of a herky-jerky appearance, whereas everyone else, uh, Spider-Gwen and Peter B. Parker, are just smooth. But um, once Miles masters his powers, he's he becomes just as graceful as they are. Uh now, uh, another aspect of the film that uh, comes out is the costume designs. Uh, Sarah Pacelli, who created the Miles Morales character in the comic books, did um, was brought on to do sort of a, uh, a tweak of Miles in this film. Uh, she designed the hoodie and sneakers look for the character, which I think looks pretty cool, and uh, also redesigned it so he kind of has a spray-painted vibe going on, especially on the logo, which I think is pretty neat. It's a popular cosplay, uh, cosplay chance. Uh, Old-school uh, Spider-Man artist Keith Pollard, who drew the character throughout the 70s and 80s, he did the, um, the present-day um, uh, Spider-Man, uh, who was voiced by Chris Pine, the one who was, um, one who was killed by the Kingpin. Uh, Eric Larson, who drew the character in the 90s um, and uh, designed the version of Venom with the long tongue, he, uh, he did Peter B. Parker. Uh, other aspects of the of the animation would be uh, they went with motion smearing instead of uh, motion blur. Uh, that's particularly evident in Chuck Jones films like the Dover Boys. Uh, it uh, gives it a less realistic look and a more stylized one. And they also avoided using the squash and stretch techniques that you often see in Disney films, uh, relying on other uh, abilities to uh, imply weight or impact. Yeah, there are also a couple of Easter eggs throughout. Uh, Donald Glover, uh, his um, his image appears in Aaron's apartment, and there are a whole bunch of uh, other random things. One thing uh, I, I noticed that, that there was a um, movie poster for Clone High. That was the first major project that uh, directors Phil Lord and Christopher Miller worked on. Now, uh, is there uh, anything else you'd like to add about uh, what the movie looked like? What uh, what what your thoughts were about uh, its appearance and how it uh, deviates from, you know, typical cartoons? No, not really. There's not really anything else about it. Well, if something comes to you, just uh, just jump on in. 
And as I said, there were there were a couple of differences between how Miles is depicted in this film and as he is in his initial appearances, written by Brian Michael Bendis and Sarah Pacelli. Uh, most notably is his relationship to Uncle Aaron, the you know the Prowler. Uh, basically, in the comics, uh, once Prowler finds out that Miles has spider powers. Uh, he decides to uh, use them to start taking out his rivals. You see, the Kingpin is out of commission, and a whole, every other supervillain is trying to fill that void. And he thinks that, you know, he can trick Miles, who wants to be Spider-Man, into fighting all these bad guys for him, and then he can swoop in and take over the underworld. Uh, it backfires. Aaron is killed in the, um, in the ensuing confrontation once Miles figures out what's up. And his last words were uh, to Miles were... Um, blaming him for everything happening and saying that Miles is no better than he is, which, you know, once again goes on to, um, uh, you know, interesting subversion of the got bit uncle died. Now I, now I have powers and use them to be Spider-Man. However, I do think the film just pulled that off a lot better, uh, especially the death scene with, um, uh, w w with Prowler where, you know, uncle Aaron looks at, at Miles and tells him that, you know, he's the best of any of them and that he's sorry for letting him down and all that. Uh, I've seen a whole bunch of um, superheroes, uh, older relative gets fridged and that motivates them scenes. And I, I thought I was pretty much bulletproof but that one got to me. How did you feel about it, Toby? I, I was, I thought at first, when I first went to go see the movie, that he would stay alive throughout the whole movie, except at the end he would die, but that's not what happened. In the middle of the movie, he died, and I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, yeah, it was right at the end of Act 2. Yeah. I mean, both of Miles' parents get to live, but somebody has to die. He's a superhero. He needs guilt. Uh, yeah, you go back to the well enough times and, and it just starts becoming a trope. Um, now, the Spider-Verse comic, uh, it didn't involve, like, Kingpin building a collider or anything. It, uh, it actually surrounded a bunch of energy vampires who fed on totems. Uh, particularly, um, they, they went after superheroes that had animal powers. Now, every now and again, they bug the Black Panther, but they usually go after Spider-Man. And they decided to go through reality to reality and eat Spider-Man over and over again until um, all the various other spiders decided that they've had enough of that, so they band together to stop them. Uh, personally, well, I do think that the vampires have this sort of cool vibe to them. I prefer the Kingpin Super Collider plot. It, um, it brought a personal touch to it. And even gave the, the kingpin a motive, which, you know, I mean, a relatable humanistic motive, which he usually doesn't have. Yeah. How would you feel about the reveal that the kingpin was building that collider in order to resurrect his dead family? Do you think that brought some pathos to him? Yeah, probably. I don't think he should have done that. Like, your family's dead, you can't do anything about it. You're just going to kill everybody else that you love. Yeah, well, he's a selfish man, even when he's doing what he thinks is the right thing. Yes. Now, uh, as I said before, I uh, was thinking about filtering this film through the uh, through the Cambellian hero's journey. At some point, I, if I keep doing this show long enough, I have to talk about it. So, I'm going to break it down in uh, 
not not comprehensive detail, but a bit more than I did in the intro. Uh, according to Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey begins with uh, the hero getting a call to adventure. He initially refuses it, uh, but then he is uh, given you know prodding and assistance, often from an older mentor. Tends to be uh, a Gandalf or uh, Obi Wan type. And then there's a crossing the threshold moment where, you know, he finally decides to take up the charge. And then there's what he calls the belly of the whale, which um, tends to be the final separation from the, uh, from the hero with the known world. Uh, then it goes with a road of trials with the hero having to uh, surmount various tasks. Uh, he then gets helpful items that will become useful later on. Uh, the hero is then tempted to abandon the quest. Uh, then follows the atonement with father scene. Uh, this is often when the, the hero confronts ultimate power, whether it's, you know, the father or otherwise. This is followed by an, apotheo uh, an, an apotheosis. Apotheosis, sorry. Uh, this is a realization that gr uh, brings wider understanding. Uh, then follows the ultimate boon, uh, which is the achievement of the, of the initial goal of the quest. Although this often bring brings up uh, other complications. Among them often being the refusal to return, where the hero is reluctant to return back to their uh, home. And the magic flight, uh, sometimes the hero has to escape with, it, with whatever boon they earned. Uh, this point comes from the rescue from without, where the hero's comrades uh, swoop in to help them. Uh, crossing of the return threshold, where the hero comes home to share the wisdom they learned along the way. Uh, subsequently comes the Master of Two Worlds, where... Uh, the hero achieves balance between their old world and the new one. And finally, uh, the freedom to live, which is uh, often a sign that the hero has to learn to live in the moment. When we're talking about characters like Jesus or the Buddha, there comes to be sort of an ascension thing uh, associated with it. Now, the Campbellian hero's journey, uh, like I said before, is often tied to Star Wars, but one of the reasons it caught on besides Star Wars being just, you know, the monolithic massive success it was is that it's pretty easy to condense what I just described into 90 and 120 minutes, uh, you know, often the standard length of a feature film, especially if it's a, a simple action story. I think uh, Spider-Verse follows what I just described more or less beat for beat. Now, uh, there are some criticisms of the monomyth. Um, it's often said that this sort of thing encourages cre uh, cliches. Lots of people have gone back to this. Like, what I just described applies to Spider-Man. It applies to Harry Potter. It can apply to a dozen other things that anyone listening to this can name off the top of their head. And gets kind of hacky after a bit. Uh, I didn't really feel much for Katniss. Um, you know, after, after going through decades of thousands of variations of this story. Now, uh, another thing, um, uh, philosopher John Shelton Lawrence uh, reconfigured the uh, mo uh, Campbellian monomyth to fit a superhero narrative more, um, more neatly. Uh, to quote him, uh, his uh, variation of the Campbellian mythos is uh, for superheroes is, a community in harmonious paradise is threatened by evil. Normal institutions fail to contend with this threat. A selfless superhero emerges to, uh, emerges to renounce temptations and carry out the redemptive task. Aided by fate, his decisive victory restores the community to its paradisical condition. The superhero then recedes into obscurity. Now, as I said in the uh, Zorro podcast I recorded, 
one of the core elements of uh, mass vigilantes and superheroes is that they seek a return to the status quo. They think society is fine. There's this aberration. We need to go out and correct it. And then after that, it's over. And they overcome the, uh, this with force. They get to uh, determine what, uh, how things go because they are stronger and they have powers that other people don't. Might makes right. Which uh, leads many people to think that there's an inherently tyrannical or fascist element to superheroes. Um, some people have suggested that this applies to Campbellian monomyth in general. Uh, it's kind of hard to uh, discuss progressive causes uh, authoritatively if you're following the formula of the, uh, of the Campbellian hero's journey. And uh, there are a lot of examples with someone criticizing this in the nature of pop culture. Uh, well, the one I keep coming across is Frank Herbert's Dune, which follows the, uh, the hero's journey to a, to a point, but is sort of transgressive against it, uh, ultimately teaching people that they are better off not putting their faith into outside heroes, but learning from, you know, their own mistakes and applying their own, uh, uh, their own judgment. Now, what do you think, Toby? Do you, uh, do you, do you, do you think the her, uh, heroic narratives like the one you saw in Spider-Verse might have a, might have a dark side to them? Yeah, I think so. Maybe they have a little dark side to them. Well, in what way? Like, since, like, usually we see, like, in... DC movies and Marvel movies, they look like real life. Now these ones don't. It could have a downside. Just a little bit. Yeah, I mean, one of the messages in this film, which is hammered home pretty um, pretty unsubtly, is that anyone can be Spider-Man. You could be Spider-Man. The mask could be anyone. Which isn't wholly within, you know, the Campbellian mythos, but... Uh, and some people who are uh, a bit more on the cynical side uh, say that this is just a method to sell more Spider-Man merchandise. I mean, yeah, Peter Parker's a white dude, but here are a whole bunch of other Spider-Men and Spider-Women, and one of them kind of looks like you. You should buy that one and be that for Halloween. Well, I don't think it's going to be that ever. I think I would wear Spider-Man costume because I did that with my dad at one point, but I'm probably not going to, like, pretend to be an actual Spider-Man ever. Oh, you, you, you don't think you can put on a suit and go out and clean up your neighborhood? Yeah. I mean, there are some litter bugs. As we're going here, a bunch of guys were uh, defying the quarantine and uh, playing basketball outside. You don't want to put on your, your, your Spider-Man romper suit and and, and teach them to respect authority? No. You, you've learned nothing from this film? No, it's because there's no one that can actually be Spider-Man in this real universe that we're in right now. I don't think anybody could be Spider-Man. All right, you don't, think, you don't think someone could literally be Spider-Man? You, uh, you think it's more of a metaphor? Yeah. All right, what do you think it's a metaphor for? Well, yes, uh, the ultimate goal of any film is to put butts in seats, and um, ever since Star Wars, the uh, t-shirts and action figures and video game side of it have uh, 
have become more of the main point than uh, the, than an ancillary side hustle. And that being said, I mean, hundreds of people worked very hard on this, and they went through a lot of drafts. They they must have been trying to tell you something. Now, obviously, the uh, the studio bosses at Sony were kind of like, "Oh yeah, let's uh, let's take this popular character and do an iteration of him that is more relatable to." Uh, the 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 modern kids of today, especially those uh, those Zoomers that we haven't quite figured out with or Gen Z, whatever we're calling them. But uh, I mean, there has to be something else with it. Can't be completely hollow. I mean, people see continue to connect with this character after so many years. Uh, why do you think that is? Why do you think people like Spider Man? Um, I think they like Spider Man because it just looks cool too. Like, like I watch. Spider-Man movies sometimes with my father, and his, yeah. his favorite superhero is Spider-Man. Yeah, I was about to say your dear, your dad's favorite is Spider-Man. I've watched several Spider-Man movies with him, and he thinks Spider-Man looks really cool. Not even too, just not as much as he does. I mean, like, I know he likes Spider-Man a lot, but I and plus he made me work. Spider-Man costume for Halloween. Uh, I mean, it's a onesie with white eye slits. It's, yes. it's, it's so utilitarian. Yeah. But it, it says in the film itself that he doesn't have to worry about uh, his shoelaces coming untied. Yeah, but um, it could be fun because how are you supposed to shoot webs from your hands? That's the thing. And how is all that web shooter? Supposed to go in that one, like, wristband thing that you use, and then you just press a button, and you just get to swing like Spider-Man. I don't know how that's supposed to work. Oh, it's it's comic book magic science. Yeah. It's, it's like whenever the super collider fires up, there are all these, you know, Kirby crackle black dots everywhere. You know, looks neat, get, gets the impression across. Yeah, I, but how are you supposed to do that well, there are people who swing on ropes, just not in Spider-Man's ca capacity, because he has superpowers and he doesn't have to worry about his arm being ripped out of his socket. <laughs> no, he doesn't. I mean, I think that brings us back to what we were saying before. It's a, it's a, it's a metaphor, possibly a power fantasy. Is I mean, wouldn't it be nice if we could solve all our problems by punching them in the face? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I mean, how many problems do you? Do you encounter in your actual day-to-day -day life that could be solved by throwing a car at somebody? Uh, a lot. Are you sure? Well, are you yeah. sure they? Are you sure that throwing a car at somebody wouldn't just create new problems? Yeah, that probably would create Yeah, I mean, if there's a guy you don't like, and I mean, you throw a car at him, <laughs> you probably you probably feel good for like ten minutes, and then and then lots of bad things would happen to you, and they wouldn't stop. Unless it's like really serious when like there's like a group of like bandits around and the cops are just don't know what to do. Just grab a car and throw it at them. Right, but uh as you're saying the world's a more complicated place than that. You've just learned about uh climate change and even if you had Spider Man powers you you wouldn't be able to stop that by yourself with your Spider Man powers. 
So sometimes it feels good to close your eyes and live in a world where actually having the spider powers can 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 do things. Yeah. Do concrete things, lasting things. Yeah. yeah. That's what I sometimes do. Yeah, it, it, you know, even there when you have the powers there you have to decide when to when to use them and when to not. Like I said, if you throw the car at the guy, that often just creates new problems. It's like if you if you have that uh, have those powers, you have to have the proper judgment uh, to know when to use them, you know, responsibly. As if having those powers greater than others creates a greater sense of Oh, come on. Your dad's going to be... Uh, he's going to be crestfallen. You don't know that with great power comes great responsibility. Oh, right. That one. <laughs> yeah, that one. <laughs> All right. Uh, one other thing. Um, let's uh, let's get into the music, which, uh, as I mentioned, uh, this film is trying to, you know, reintroduce the character to uh, to a newer, wider audience who might find the traditional uh, version of Spider-Man, a little old hat. Uh, this is represented in the music, which was specifically constructed to represent what a um, Gen Z teenager in the modern day might listen to. Um, Daniel Pemberton composed the, uh, the music. Uh, there, It's not a traditional orchestral uh, score, although there are some strings here and there. Uh, there's, um, there's a lot of... Um, Synthetic textures, uh, keyboards, record scratches, stuff like that. Uh, pop songs threaded throughout are by Juice World, uh, Sway Lee, Nicki Minaj, Ski Mask, The Slump God, uh, Post Malone, Lil Wayne, Ty Dolla Sign, Extension, and a whole lot of other artists that my aging millennial self does not listen to. Uh, I mean, I've heard of Post Malone, Nicki Minaj, and Lil Wayne, but I don't particularly care for any of them. Thankfully, the, the, the film throws a few bones to some old heads. Uh, you know, there's there's a Biggie song in that, which I thought was very nicely used. Uh, the scene where um, Miles is tagging the subway sta uh, station with, uh, with his Uncle Aaron includes a medley of, um, you know, there's a little bit of Run DMC in there. Uh, there's uh, Apache from the Fabulous Bongo uh, Band, which is sampled in like 900 different things. Uh, you know, I think the music was used really well. It has a lot of the sort of mumble rap and um, sampling uh, textures that don't appeal to me personally, but I thought it was well uh, well executed. Now, I think Toby is a little younger than the most um, most of the kids these days that listen to that um Newfangled gobbledygook, but well, what do you think of the music, Toby? Um, that was okay. I, I liked it. Uh, it's, I liked all the music. Well, yeah. I mean, you don't really strike me as a hip hop kid. Are you? Uh, any of those artists work for you? I mean, I think Post Malone's the biggest artist at the moment, or at least one of them. Post Malone's the biggest artist. Oh, he is. Yeah. Okay, it's not Taylor Swift anymore. Thanks for keeping me on the up and up. Okay, uh, before we go, we should probably discuss the franchise's future because this film was uh, did very well. It made a lot of money. Everybody seemed to love it. Um, 
Spider-Man people have compared it to Mask of the Phantasm, saying that it's like the best incarnation of the character. Uh, and it won, uh, won an Oscar for Best Animated Film. The official sequel is coming out in 2022 because the elaborate animation that I detailed uh, takes a while to, um, to, to properly execute. Uh, not much is known about it. Uh, directors Phil Lord and Christopher Miller of this film will be involved in some capacity for, uh, in, the, in the second one. However, uh, directorial duties have already passed on to someone else. It has been told that you know new spider people are going to be introduced, which is not a surprise. Uh, one person they revealed is that the live-action Japanese Spider-Man from 1978 to 1979 will be included. This is um, a Spider-Man who calls himself the Emissary of Hell, and he fights crime with a giant robot. That sounds awesome. Yeah, uh, if you're familiar with... Um, well, uh, the Japanese TV uh, programmers who created the Spider-Man show, uh, they also wanted to do an Avengers show, but uh, the license um, got pulled from them, so they retooled the characters into what was eventually became known as Super Sentai, which we know as Power Rangers. In retrospect, it's not surprising that the Power Rangers costumes are just modified Spider-Man outfits. But um, yeah, there's a Power Ranger Spider-Man. He's going to be in the next one. Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, it's um, it, he does he does toe that line between stupid and amazing that comic books do very very well. Uh, there is also possibly going to be a Spider Ham solo movie. Yeah, I think that would be fun to watch, like him in his own world, except he's not like actually with other Spider Man. So it would be fun to see a Spider Ham solo movie. In fact, they. Could even start a Spider Ham like series of movies, like Spider Spider Ham One, Spider Ham Two, Spider Ham Three. Yeah, I'm sure if it does well, that's what that's exactly what they'll do. But yeah, you're right. Spider Ham lives in his world where every character has is basically a cartoon animal. Um, in addition to Spider Ham, there's a uh, there's the Hulk Bunny, um, there's Captain America, there's Goose Rider, there's Howard the Human, and. Uh, there's also talk about a, um, a Spider-Woman movie that's basically a team of all the various Spider-Women. Not only Gwen, but um, the Jessica Drew version from the 70s, uh, Silk, a character I'm not super familiar with. And uh, there's also possibly going to be a, a, a TV show. Um, I'm not sure if it'll be on Disney Plus or not. The legal rights to Spider-Man are a bit murky right now. There's a shared custody thing going on between Sony and Disney. But I think that'll play up into how um, the characters are designed in this film, because uh, one thing I forgot to talk about is that all the various spider people are animated in different ways. You know, um, Spider-Woman uh, has uh, the, the, the neon color palette of, uh, you know, the Robbie Rodriguez con uh, uh, art that, uh, uh, that she's based on. Uh, Spider-Man Noir looks like he fell out of a Sin City video game cutscene. Uh, Spider-Ham has that sort of 1940s Warner Brothers Tex Avery vibe to him. And uh, Penny Parker, who I only briefly touched upon, kind of has this anime vibe to it. Um, yeah, well, which of the animation styles did you like the most? Did you like the anime Penny Parker? Did you like the Tex Avery, like, uh, giant wooden mallet Spider-Ham? You did seem to think the mallet was pretty funny. I love him. I, I think they could have done a better job. And... 
Speaking of Spider-Ham, I wonder if they're actually going to do, like, a live-action Spider-Ham movie where it looks, like, more realistic. It's not, like, actually animated. It looks, like, actual realistic. Like, they somebody actually dresses up as a pig as Spider-Ham. Oh, oh, so you're not, you're not thinking of, like, a... Like a CGI spider ham going to the real world, like the Sonic the Hedgehog movie you just saw. Not animated. It's a live action movie, and it looks like looks more realistic. Oh, you want a you want a trained pig in a Spider Man costume? Yes, or somebody dressed as a pig. Okay. And all those like other. Like Animal Avengers, like like Captain America and and you know Doctor Strange. Yes, Doctor Strange. He's a duck. <laughs> now, uh, what aspects of Spider Ham do you think the movie could do better? Are you just doing your little Food Network critic thing where you feel that you need to say something mean? No. Oh, okay. So, um, what part of the mallet do you think could have been better? And his hand could be actually like gripping it. It looked like he would actually grip it and then smash it. That would be fun. Take note, animators. Toby's on the prowl. You can see your failure. <laughs> okay, well that that wraps up just about everything I wanted to talk about. Is there uh, is there anything you'd like to add, Toby? Okay, so those are Toby's thoughts about about Spider-Verse. Uh, thanks for listening to everybody. We will see you next time.